So this morning we come to the fourth and final of the four servant songs that we've been looking at in the last few weeks from the book of Isaiah. Songs that describe the servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've looked at each of the other three songs, we've seen that in each of those songs there is a spiritual need that cries out for remedy. In the first song, it was the need for justice. Only the servant can bring justice. In the second, the great spiritual need was for uh, redirection and restoration and salvation. Only the servant of the Lord can provide that. Last week, as we looked at the third song, we saw that the great spiritual need was that weary people need a word to sustain them. And that sustenance comes to us, to weary people, from the servant of the Lord. And so this week we come to the most famous of the four songs, one of the most famous passages of Scripture. And so it's with great humility that we come to it, knowing that it's been preached by the greatest preachers of the world and exegeted by the greatest scholars. But it too puts a need before us, a spiritual need that cries out for help. And what is that need? It is our need, your need, and my need for a substitute, for someone who will take our place. You and I, we don't easily step aside. We don't easily give up our place because deep down inside, we believe. Or at least, we really, really hope that we are irreplaceable. We we hope that. That no one can take our place. We think that no one can do things as well as we can. When I was used to be a school teacher and I would be away from class and and have to call a substitute. When I would return and go back to class, I really, really, really hoped the students would say, Mr. Bailey, we are so glad you're back. We hated that substitute. And I would have to stifle the little voice inside of me that says, yes. But there's also the possibility when I came back that the students would say, Mr. Bailey, that substitute was so cool. He was so great. When you're absent again, would you please call him? In which case I had to stifle the little voice that said, but you like me better, right? And let's be honest. Preaching, when I'm not here, when I'm gone, and when I come back, I want you to say, let's not go there. (laughs) (laughs) But you do like me better, don't you? (laughs) Please say yes. So anyway, we, we don't like to admit that someone can substitute for us. That someone can do as good a job as we can do. And how much harder it is for us to admit then that we need a substitute to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But that's what we must admit. Because that's the reality. And so you and I must step aside and let Jesus take our place. And I hope that that's what we'll see this morning and be convinced of as we look at this fourth servant song from the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 52... I'm going to ask you to stand so that we can hear, read together, the word of the one and only true and living God. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed by uh, this passage this morning, the depth of it, far too great to explain, to understand, to comprehend in uh, a few brief moments together. Lord, we trust your spirit to do his work in us and through us. Even this word that's been read, Lord, I pray that your spirit would apply its truth to our hearts. So bless us as we come now to your word. Grant us understanding so that we can love you and worship you and follow you and step aside for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Look with me, if you will, in verse 13, because this final song begins just as the first song in chapter 42 began, and it begins with this, Behold my servant, see my servant. What does the Lord want you to do? What does the Lord want you to do? What does he want me to do when he commands this of you and me? To look, to behold his servant. Is it just a staring? As a teenager may do when a parent says, Look at me when I'm talking to you. And that teenager turns a blank eye and a dead stare to observe the physical form of the parent, though he or she has no intention of listening to or abiding by what the parent has to say to them. Is that what the Lord asks of us when he says, look, look at me, behold my servant? No, it's beyond that. When he says, look, 
It means consider who he is, all of who he is. If everything that he that has been said about him in songs 1, 2, and 3, if those things are true, and if what we're going to see of him this morning in, verse, in song 4, if these things are true, and they are, then you and I should want to fix our gaze on the servant of the Lord and never take our eyes off of him. And when we look at him, as he's described in this particular song, we'll notice that the servant of the Lord is a servant of extremes. Look with me at the second part of verse 13. It says that the servant will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. In every other instance in Isaiah, when these Hebrew words are put together, raised and lifted up, or high and lifted up, when they're paired, they always describe God. Always. Isaiah himself saw a vision of the Lord back in chapter 6. And he writes, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. In Isaiah 33, verse 10, Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. It's the Lord. The same thing is true for this word exalted. Exalted is used in Isaiah to describe who God and God alone is. Isaiah 2 verse 11. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And in verse 17. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And so it's clear that this servant of the Lord the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one on whom God calls us to fix our attention, he is God, high and exalted and lifted up. But then immediately we come to the opposite extreme. Look in verse 14. It says there that, that many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred, Beyond human likeness. And then skip over to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. So behold the servant of the Lord, God says to us. The one who is high and lifted up and exalted. And the one who is also marred and dejected and despised. One from whom people hid their faces. Both extremes, this and this, exist in the same servant. We have to be careful here about taking these words Too literally. The point is not that the servant or that Jesus was a physical freak of nature. That he was so grotesque in his appearance that no one could bear to look at him. That's not the point. As it is with us today, so it was in the day of Isaiah. 
How many times have you said of someone who is exceptionally good-looking, charismatic, charming, look at him. Who does he think he is? God's gift to earth? That's what we say. Well, Jesus, who is literally God's gift to earth, is not that gift because of what he looks like. Look, Israel's first king, Saul, exceptionally good-looking man, tall, well-built, a mighty warrior. That's what we read of him in Scripture. People flocked to him. We could allow someone who looked like Saul to be our substitute, and it wouldn't sting our pride too much because, after all, Saul was exceptional. But he could never be our substitute because he was selfish and, and, and shallow and prideful, and he turned his back on the Lord. The next king, David, also exceptionally good-looking, handsome, well-built, an even mightier warrior than Saul had been. He was even a man after God's own heart. We could allow someone like David to be our substitute for us without stinging our pride too much because, after all, David was David. But though he was a good king in, in many ways, and even a man after God's own heart, David, too, was a selfish man. He was driven by his own lust and desires, and so he could never be our substitute, good-looking and magnetic as he was. See, we put our hope in qualities such as these. But it's not God's way. This is not God's way. And at the heart of this description of the servant, it's not so much that we are repelled by his outward appearance as we are repelled by who he is. We're repelled. We turn away from someone who will not defend themselves, for someone who will not speak up for themselves. Who wants to follow someone who is oppressed and afflicted, yet won't open his mouth? One who allows himself to be led like a, a, a lamb to be slaughtered, but keeps silent. What's manly about that? What kind of leader, what kind of substitute could he be? How could someone like that take our place? Verse 2 says he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like the sucker growth on a plant. If you've ever done any gardening, you go out the garden, you pull those sucker that sucker growth off so the plant can thrive. That's what... The servant is like. If we want to have a substitute, we expect, we demand a mighty oak to be the the one, not a tender shoot. It says he's like a little plant, a root, struggling just to survive in a land where there is no water. That's what our substitute is like. And so we give up in disgust at the weakness and defenselessness of one like he is. It makes us despise him. Look, look in verse 13, the he, in verse 3, excuse me, the Hebrew word used there for despise doesn't mean hate like it does for us. Oh, I despise that. I hate that. No, in Hebrew, it just means to consider something worthless, unworthy. And so when people look at the servant, it's not that they hate him. They dismiss him as irrelevant and unimportant. We would never naturally step aside and let someone like this servant take our place. And so why is it that we see this extremity, these two extremes in the servant of the Lord? Why is he high and lifted up and exalted God and at the same time rejected and humiliated and despised? 
It's because your need and my need is so extreme. Our extreme is need. The distance that separates you and me from God, that distance is extreme. And we could never span that distance on our own. The extremes tell the story. If the servant were not high and exalted God, he would have no ability, no power to help us. He must be God. But if he did not humiliate himself and suffer so extremely, he could not be the substitute that you and I have to have if our sins are to be carried away. He was extreme. God, humiliated servant for us, for you and me. And therein lies the importance of this whole psalm for you and for me. It's in this first person plural pronoun. We, our, us. That's where the significance comes for you and me. Look in verse 4. It says there, Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Aaron was the brother of Moses. And he was the first high priest that ever stood between God and his people. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Aaron was required to make sacrifice for his own sin, for the sins of his people, and even for the holy place and the articles inside it because sinful humans had been present in the temple and sinful humans had touched the articles of it. And so Aaron was to make atonement for all of it. And when he had finished doing that, God commanded him then to to bring forward a live goat. And he said, Aaron is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release the goat into the desert. So you see, it's always been a need that people have, you and me, the people of Isaiah's day, to have their sins carried far away from them. And that's what the servant came to do. Once and for all, to carry our sins away. And maybe if Jesus had done it in the same way, maybe if Jesus said, oh, y'all just come here and, and lay your hands on me, and then I will ride away into the desert and carry your sins off for you, maybe if he had done it that way, you and I would be okay with it. Because there's nothing too extreme there, is there? But our sins require more than that. Because that goat had to be sent into the desert year after year after year after year. That goat could not make atonement for sins. That goat could not really carry sins away. The one who would deal with sin once and for all had to get extreme. And when we see the extremity of what the servant of the Lord had to suffer, we don't want to own it because it's too ugly for us, what our sin required. And so what's our response? Look again in verse 4. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. See, we want to detach ourselves from the extremity of it, from the ugliness and the suffering that the payment of sin requires. The people never had to touch the head of that scapegoat. Aaron did it for them. And so the people were always detached from this process. The people were always just observers. And so that's what we want. That's what we want. 
when we look at the servant of the Lord. We want to be detached. Well, his suffering is, after all, his suffering. Because it's too much for us to look at. Too much for us to admit that our sin caused it, and so we turn away. He's stricken by God, and he's afflicted. One day Jesus was walking along with his disciples, and he saw a man that was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, the disciples, like the other Jews of Jesus' day, believed that if you were suffering, if you were sick, if there was something wrong in your life, it was because of some sin that you had committed, or in this case, the sin of the parents. And so the Jews had this overemphasis on finding blame and tracing blame. Sick and suffering people must be sinful people who are getting what they deserve. And that's what we say when we come to the servant. Keep me out of it. He is stricken by God. He is smitten. He is afflicted. That's between him and God. The same attitude came up on another occasion in the life of Jesus, when the news broke that these Galileans had been put to death by Pilate. And Jesus said to the people who knew uh, uh, the story, he said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Don't be a detached observer of the sins of others. Don't try to figure out what their sin was. Look at yourself. Look at your own sins. Look at your own need and repent. You need a substitute to stand in your place. That's what Jesus is saying. Sins of other people have impacted all of us because every person we have ever encountered in our life, every person we will ever encounter in the remainder of our lives, all of them are sinners. And that sin is going to impact us. The sins of our parents or whoever raised us will impact our lives because you know what? They did wrong things. Why? Because they were sinners. And there'll be consequences for that. But if we're always looking backward, if we're always passing backward on others, we will never find help for our own need. God did not lay sin and the consequences of it on any other person. God laid sin and its payment on his servant, his son. And that's where you and I must lay it as well. He's the only one that can do anything about their sin and your sin, and that's the point. You and I don't have to live as victims of sin. Those perpetrated against us, or that indirectly damaged us, or the ones that we have committed ourselves. We lay them on Jesus, and he takes our place. He's our substitute. He takes the ugly, painful punishment that they deserve, and he carries them away. And please don't think I'm being insensitive to things that you have suffered, how you've been sinned against, things that I'm not even aware of. But who knows how the person who sinned against you was sinned against. 
And who knows how the person who sinned against you was sinned against by the person who sinned against you. On and on we could go. Back, further and further, there's no end. Actually, that's not true, is it? There is an end. If we could do it, we would all arrive back, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and we would see two human beings who fell prey to the temptation of Satan, and they sinned. And so you and I can look backward for understanding, for how we got to where we are, but your only hope for help is acknowledging I, me, my, and looking to Christ to be your help. It's the only way. Isaiah doesn't say here, surely he took up their infirmities and carried their sorrows. He was pierced for their transgressions. He was crushed for their iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of them all. No. Isaiah uses the first person, our transgressions, our iniquities, the ugliness, and the bloody mess, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the crucifixion. It is a picture of the ugliness of our sin. And Jesus isn't suffering with us on the cross. He is suffering for us in our place as our substitute. Doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Paying the price that you and I should have to pay. And the language here is severe. It says he was pierced through. Some commentators say that pierced through, that this was the strongest term that existed in the Hebrew language for violent and excruciating death. That's what the servant suffered. Crushed suggests breaking into pieces and in some cases pulverizing. And you and I, we think our sin is not serious. Or we act as though our sin is not serious. That a slap on the hand might have been enough for Jesus to endure. But God says, behold my servant and see him in his humiliation and his suffering. He had to do that for your sin and for mine. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So look at your life and I'm going to look at my life and see how we're living it and what we're doing with it. And remember that Jesus didn't just get a smack on the hand for it. He was pierced and he was crushed while we play around almost as if it does not matter how we live our lives. One foot in the church, one foot in the world of faith, and the rest of our bodies in the world. And what you and I may take lightly, what you and I take lightly, crushed Jesus. That's what the word of the Lord says. That's the reality of the crucifixion. So we call it a white line. We call it an indiscretion to try to soften the blow, but there was no softening the blows that Jesus took. John Oswald writes, We typically wish to make light of our shortcomings, to explain away our mistakes. But God will have none of it. The refusal of humanity to bow to the Creator's rule And our insistence on drawing up our own moral codes and pander to our lusts are not shortcomings or mistakes. They are the stuff of death and corruption. 
And unless someone can be found to stand in our place, they will see us impaled on the swords of our own making and broken on the racks of our own designs. You and I have to have a substitute. And God provides for our greatest need. He says to you and to me, Behold my servant. He's the one. He's the substitute. And I know most of you have heard all of this before. You have. And I know you think, wow, this is intense. And some people say, lighten up a little bit. You know, visitors are never going to come back if you preach like this. But there is no lightening up when it comes to sin. What shall we say to the Lord? Oh, Lord, lighten up a little bit. No, there's no lightening up. No lightheartedness when it comes to sin. Only extremes. The high and lifted up one, the exalted one becoming sin for us. That's the reality. Those are God's extremes. But God's an extreme God. He's extreme in the love that he has for us. He's extreme in the grace that he lavishes on us. He's extreme in his grief over sin and the devastation that it causes. And the extremity The emotions of God cause him to act on behalf of sinners to do something about that sin. We're the ones who want to moderate. We're the ones who need to moderate. Because you and I, we cannot handle the extremes. We like to live in a climate-controlled environment. We don't want God to be extreme. Because we don't want to be required to be extreme. Extreme in our worship. Extreme in our service, extreme in our commitment or its lifestyle. We don't want to be extreme or ruthless with our sin. We don't want to be extreme in our repentance to which Jesus calls us. Calls us. Let's just everybody take it easy. Stay calm. You may not want to be extreme. You may not want to get too excited about this faith stuff. Not too excited about Christianity because of the impact that extremity will have on your life. But I guarantee you this. You wouldn't want God to be any other thing but extreme. You wouldn't. Because you need Him to be extreme. And when the day comes in your life, even if that day is not right now, you will be glad to find that God is extreme. When you finally realize you cannot do it on your own. And when you're tired, And when you're weary, and when your life is falling apart because you can't handle it, you will be glad that though He is high and lifted up, that though He is the exalted, holy God of the universe, Jesus the servant was willing to take your place and to be your substitute. You'll be glad, eternally glad. And when that day comes and you finally step aside and you let Him take your place, you will say with all the others who have stepped aside, and said, Lord, take my place, you will say together, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that only your truth, what's true of you, what's true of your word, that that's all that will be remembered from our time together in your word. But what is true, Lord, take it. 
and drive it deep into our hearts. And Lord, when you say, behold your servant, let us look at him. Let us look at you, Lord Jesus Christ. The high and exalted one, the one who is lifted up. And let us see what you did to leave that place of exaltation, which had been yours from all eternity past, and you came down here to be humiliated and degraded, to be despised and rejected. You did that, because that's what our sins require. And so pray, Lord, that when we look and when we see, we won't pity you, Lord, because you laid down your life of your own accord. We'll love you, that you did exactly what our sins require, what they demand, if we will ever find peace with you. But Lord, I do pray that the reality of your sacrifice and the extent of it and what was absolutely required would cause us to to look at our lives in the way that we are living them and know that it's our sin that we play around with, Lord, that that caused uh, your, your suffering. Transform us, we pray, Lord. Make us repentant people who look to you and the power that you have to offer us because you are God. And Lord, as we look at you and as we see you, fill us with joy as we say hallelujah. What a Savior you are. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.